the truth podcast what i learned about racism hey y'all thank you so much for joining me for episode three and thank you so much for joining me for a important but also difficult conversation I think it is critical to have open dialogue about racism and, you know, what a better time than right now. In the past, I don't know, seven weeks, I have seen more mainstream conversations about race in America than I have seen in my entire 32 years of life. And although I'm happy about that, I've recently become a little disillusioned because I see some of those conversations waning and I see a lot of placating and appeasement. And I just really hope that we can continue really honest and open dialogue about this topic. So I thought even if just for posterity's sake to remember that at some point in my life, this was a mainstream conversation, I really wanted to do an episode about racism and in particular, what I've learned about racism, you know, in my entire life, but also really this year, um, even before the events leading up to all the racial demonstrations, I had just been kind of on a journey reading about the black experience in America. And especially for someone like me, who was raised first generation Kenyan American, those aren't really conversations that happen in my house. So it's been both an unlearning and learning at the same time when it comes to how I feel about race and who I am, especially being raised in this country. So I know it's a hard conversation, but like I said, I think it's a really necessary conversation. And I really felt like it was important for me to kind of frame it in a way that gave it some direction because, you know, we can sit here and talk about race for hours and hours and hours, but I thought that it would be helpful to talk about what I've learned about race and shame together and then how race shows up in our lives and what it feels like and then what we can do to address it. And, you know, this show for me... My goal was always that it had a multicultural audience. So I'm really hoping that it can kind of bridge some gaps that may exist between, you know, different cultures. I was talking to somebody and they said, you know, having all this information, it's a little overwhelming. It's good, but it's hard to know just what to do, how to start with step one. And so at the end of the episode, I'm hoping that I can provide some insight that I've learned about what to do both from the ally perspective and the perspective of someone who needs an ally, because this is really exhausting work. Being an anti-racist is very exhausting and living life as an oppressed person is really, really exhausting. And I think sometimes it's hard to communicate both sides. And so I'm hoping that I can kind of play devil's advocate today, having had really open, honest conversations with people from all cultures. I think we're all familiar with the concept of racism 
but I still like to start with the official definition. So in Merriam-Webster's dictionary, racism is defined as a belief that race is the primary determinant of human traits and capacities, and that racial differences produce an inherent superiority of a particular race. It is also a political system or social system that is founded on racism. Right off the top, reading that now, after learning a lot about shame, you know, it's just very clear that racism is rooted in shame. And I don't think I would have ever thought about that before, but it has really changed how I look at people who I would have before called racists and also racism as a social construct in and of itself. And also how I look at myself being a black woman in America. Because I think one of the strongholds of racism is that it perpetuates itself by making the oppressed person believe that they are deserving of the brutality that they're experiencing. And you know, that's classic shame, shame 101, thinking that you deserve all the negative, terrible things that are happening to you. So when I look at shame and racism together, I see a lot of tandem activities. You know, subjugation of people is something that you see both in racism and in displays of shame. You know, making people feel less than for a lot of people makes them feel better and it's easy to distract yourself from your own shortcomings if you're focusing on someone else's supposed shortcomings or even imposing shortcomings on somebody because as we talked about in the last episode shame is really the idea that you've failed to attain some ideal state so it's not even a state that might even exist it's just something that isn't ideal to us and in that same vein you know when you think about the quote-unquote model minority and the shame that the rest of the minorities experience from not being that you can see right there where shame and racism are just so closely linked and I had never thought about shame as it relates to people who dispense racist ideas until very recently when I read The Water Dancer by Ta-Nehisi Coates which is an incredible fiction novel and it's about you know the antebellum south and slavery and it really paints an amazing picture of what slavery really looked like and how brutal and horrendous it was I think that in my experience growing up slavery was absolutely whitewashed it was maybe a line or two that we would talk about and then there would be another line about reconstruction and another line about the Freedmen's Bureau but other than that I mean I had no real concept of how absolutely damaging slavery was until my adult years and in this book, there's a phrase that Ta-Nehisi Coates uses pretty frequently, and it's quote-unquote low whites. 
And I had never heard that term before in my life. And it was really captivating to me. I just had to look it up. And the first thing that I found when I Googled the term was a quote that former President Lyndon B. Johnson said in a press conference. And it is just so profound. And it has stuck with me since that day. He said, quote, if you can convince the lowest white man he's better than the best colored man, he won't notice you're picking his pocket. Hell, give him somebody to look down on and he'll empty his pockets for you, end quote. So right there, I mean, pretty much sums up so many cycles of shame that, you know, the you in this case I think he's referring to, you know, political systems or wealthier white classes convincing the quote-unquote lowest white man that he's better than somebody else just based on his skin color because he's referenced the colored man as quote-unquote best, then you won't even notice or he won't even notice that you're picking his pocket or stealing from him or causing him to do things against his own best interest. And you know, if you take race out of that, you can apply that to so many situations that people are distracted by looking down on other people and their whole life goes down the drain because they're so focused on making other people feel bad about something that's really arbitrary. And so, you know, taking that lens when you're looking at shame I can't say that I have completely, let's say, forgiven everyone who I see espousing racist thoughts. It's still really painful when I see slash read or hear those things. But I will say that I look at the people saying those things in a different way. I kind of have a little bit of empathy for them in terms of knowing that they have probably been really shamed in their life they might have inherited this shame or it's been given to them but at some point they experience a lot of shame and it's all they can do now to release it to shame other people in the vain attempt that'll make them feel better about themselves because you know shame begets shame and they really don't have a concept of using empathy to battle the shame that they've experienced. I honestly don't think that when people who espouse racist thoughts say the things that they say, that they're even connecting them to anything above what they've been trained to think or say. Learning about shame has shown me that people who feel the need to call themselves superior based on their skin color have obviously been told in life that they are less than. And so now they feel the need to tell other people that they are less than. And having that information has given me a lot of empathy and helped me to have a lot of grace with people who espouse racist thoughts. And I know now that it's not about me. And that is something that I really needed to learn Because I think in a lot of these conversations, 
someone like myself wants to convince the other person that what they think is wrong and that they should have an open mind when it comes to people of color and that if I somehow cannot convince the person that there is something lacking in me and maybe I'm not delivering the message as effectively as I could or maybe I'm not being a good ambassador for my people like I could. I mean, there were just so many things that I thought I needed to do differently to try and convince someone that thinking that they are superior to somebody else based on their skin color was wrong. And now, because I've learned a lot about shame, I'm realizing that there's so much internal dialogue happening based on so many things that I was not a part of that I can't blame myself for not being able to convince someone that they need to change how they feel about this particular topic because there's just so much shame around it. It makes it hard for them to even really hear the conversation the way it's playing out because the shame filters it in a lot of negative ways. So I think something to think about, especially now during quarantine when we all have a little more time on our hands and we're, I think, having more conversations about race in this country is just to remember to have some empathy for people who say things and to know that it's so much about them and really how the shame has played out in their lives and this is just a reflection of that. So I think if you do decide to engage in a conversation with someone about racism, particularly if you are deciding to hold that person accountable for something they may have said or done, it's important to remember that shame will play a huge role in your conversation and make it a lot harder to have. Shame makes egos get wounded. And in these conversations, I think a focus goes to the wounded ego and not the actual issue at hand. You know, I can hold someone accountable for something they said and immediately shame will make them think, but wait, I'm a good person. So there's no way that what you're saying is valid instead of just looking at what I brought to the table. And, you know, as the person holding them accountable, it is on me to try my best to hold them accountable without bringing shame into play. Um, So that's difficult because, you know, you're upset, obviously, if you've experienced something that you think is racist. But at the same time, I do think it's important to strive as much as we can to have a conversation that is constructive and not shaming I will also say that in my experience, in holding someone accountable, they can experience shame without you dispensing it. And because racism is just such a shaming conversation, you may have the best intentions and craft an amazing message or accountability statement to somebody and all they read from it is shame because of what they have going on. Like I said, they have things going on that transpired way before you knew them or were interacting with them. So although we can do what we can as the person holding them accountable to not introduce shame into the conversation, knowing racism, it'll probably 
be a huge part of the conversation. So, you know, just thinking about how to craft your message, I think is important when we start realizing that shame plays a huge role in this conversation and also trying to have a little bit of empathy for people who are experiencing, you know, kind of shame spirals. I don't know if you've had one of these with someone lately, but it's honestly just so sad to watch. People literally just dissolve into a puddle of shame when you hold them accountable for something related to race. And, you know, I think their conscious is convicting them, but at the same time, it's just so uncomfortable to watch. And I know that if they sit in that discomfort, they'll come out on the other side stronger, but at the same time, you know, it's hard to watch. And sometimes that causes people to not hold people accountable because you don't want to watch that. You don't want to feel that discomfort and awkward moment when someone dissolves into a shame puddle. But you know what? This is our work. Discomfort is our work because in anti-racism, nobody's going to be comfortable. That's just what it is. But think of the alternative. People are dying daily because we are not having real conversations about racism. So if we have to be a little uncomfortable, I think it's worth it to save generations upon generations who could conceivably live this same chain of events forever. I mean, we're talking about hundreds of years that hasn't changed. We've gone to the moon. We've created the iPhone. We've done so many things, but we're still having conversations about pigment and skin tone. That is an issue, but let me tell you, I think that I'm inspired by what people are doing now in these streets and in these offices and I think that if we continue to have these open conversations we can make real progress and I'm excited for that so it comes as a great shock around the age of five or six or seven to discover that Gary Cooper killing off the Indians when you're rooting for Gary Cooper that the Indians were you it comes as a great shock to discover the country which is your birthplace and to which you owe your life and your identity has not in its whole system of reality evolved any place for you. James Baldwin. I wanted to talk about what racism feels like because I think my entire life, I have downplayed the effect that racism had in my life. And part of that was probably because my parents didn't really understand racial dynamics in this country, or honestly, maybe not even in their country. My parents were born and raised in Kenya and came here in 1980 and 81, respectively, which is like, you know, the height of the Reagan era and all that means but I honestly don't think they ever thought about what racism means and I know my dad was the classic 
conservative in every sense. He believed in pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. He was very conservative morally and socially. And I just think he would have aligned a lot more closely with the conservative ideology, even though he was a black man. And so I think he did a lot of othering on his own in terms of, in his head, aligning himself more with white evangelical conservatives rather than the black community. And I think for my mom, fear drove a lot of her decision-making. And I just believe that when she came here, a lot of the media that portrayed black people was kind of negative. And especially in the 80s, we're talking about NWA and Boys in the Hood and Menace to Society and the war on drugs and the LA riots, well, in early 90s. But I just think she was inundated with caricatures of what black men were in particular, and she was very afraid of that. I remember having a lot of conversations with my mom and my dad about, you know, having black American friends and dating black Americans, and they were so afraid. I think for my dad, his fear turned into prejudice, but for my mom, I think she was just purely afraid. And little did they know, you know, telling me that I should not deal with these people caused me to love them even more, which has been an incredible experience for me. But they were really forced to confront some of these ideals because these were my friends and these were the people I was dating. And, you know, they kind of had to deal with it because I wasn't backing down. So yeah, I think about now that they're both past what they would think about how things have progressed in terms of uh, racial tensions and conversations that are being had. But how they raised me played a huge role in how I interpreted racial dynamics in this country. I think just as much as my parents didn't think about racism, they also didn't think about feelings in general. So, you know, the idea that they would sit down with my siblings and I and talk about our feelings around racism is a little far-fetched. I wish that they would have, though, and I think about now all the conversations that I will have to have with my future children regarding being black people in this world, not even just in this nation. And they are scary conversations, I think, to think about having to explain to your child who you love so much that there are people in this world who hate them based on nothing. And having to explain that while navigating self-worth and self-esteem conversations and trying to build up your child, I just can't even imagine how daunting that is but you know it's so necessary because if you're not talking to your kids someone else is and I can say in my case you know society filled in the blanks that my parents left so them not having conversations with me about how I felt about racism made me just listen to what the oppressor was saying which is you have no feelings about racism because there is no racism. I am 32 and I would say for the majority of my life 
I've heard a lot of dialogue about the quote-unquote post-racial society and people not seeing color and all that. And so when I felt that I was being discriminated against, I was always met with, you know, invalidation of my feelings. Well, you must be mistaking that. That person would never do that. Maybe it's just a misunderstanding. You know, all those things that you hear to try to invalidate the feeling that you have. And without being able to talk about those things with my parents, they just became my reality. And I thought, oh, well, yeah, these people are right in telling me that I am imagining these feelings. And that caused a lot of exhaustion. Being invalidated is very exhausting. Emotional invalidation is like throwing salt on an emotional wound. You already are having a strong feeling and then someone comes around and says that you're not experiencing that feeling and it just makes it that much worse. When I think about the collective grief that black people in particular experience every time we watch a video of someone who looks like ourselves or a loved one murdered, either by the hands of an authority or the hands of a civilian. There's just so much grief in that. And we sit with that. It doesn't just go away as soon as you press stop on the video. You will sit with that for a day or even longer. And if you have someone come and tell you, you are not experiencing grief because you didn't know that person or because that person deserved to die the way they did. It just adds another layer of pain to what you're already experiencing. And it goes the same way for anger. Anger is the psychological response to injustice that is in so many textbooks. But when it comes to the black experience, I feel that we are not afforded space to be angry that it's you know looked down on for black people to be angry about the injustice that they're experiencing even though we know that that is the psychological response now it's one thing to be angry and another thing to act out in anger but even the act of being angry is something that is psychological and it's human nature and we should give space for that and allow that because we've all I think experienced times where we felt that we were going through an injustice I mean we can see right now in television there are people who feel that wearing a mask is a personal injustice and they're angry about it so it should be simple to assume that someone who experiences an injustice for 400 years would feel a certain way and that way being angry but I think there is a double standard when it comes to people of color and in particular black people being angry and again that causes more exhaustion because now you have to compartmentalize your feelings in order to survive in order to be a palatable black person for society you know you go to work after watching a video that makes you really angry and you just have to smile and pretend that you haven't seen that 
because if you do exhibit anger, you will be judged and shamed and you could even be let go of your job. So that adds another layer to the exhaustion, just being angry, having grief, and then on top of that, having fear. I don't know a black person who has not experienced fear in their life because of the color of their skin, not because of other things. We've all had fear in our lives, but I'm talking about a specific fear that came from the fact that they are a person of color or a black person. And I am 32 years old, so we're not talking about Jim Crow era America. We're talking about the quote-unquote post-racial America. We're talking about the fact that in 2020, black parents are still having to have conversations with their children on how to dress and speak and walk so that they don't attract negative attention. Or the fact that I am fearful of being pulled over by the police or my husband being stopped by a suspicious neighbor or anyone that I love ending up the next viral video because of how they look. That is an overarching fear that is kind of in the back of your mind all the time. Depending on who you are, you might think about this at the forefront of your mind. That is exhausting to have to wonder anytime your spouse leaves the house, what will happen to them and if they'll come back to you. And I think some people experience that, you know, when it comes to the military or professions that are very dangerous. But again, it's something that you have made a conscious decision to participate in versus being a black person and just being born black and still having this fear that your life is dangerous just because you're black. That kind of fear changes who you are because number one, it's through your formative years. It's not something that you develop later in life. You develop it from very early on. And number two, you're not really able to express it. So you just compartmentalize it and live with it and it becomes something that's normal to you. That creates another feeling that I thought it was important to talk about, and that is despair. I hadn't really thought about despair much until I listened to a podcast by, of course, Brene Brown, listening to her speak on anti-racism has made me love her even more. But she had a really great podcast with Austin Channing Brown and they talked about despair as it relates to being a black person and it was really profound so I thought I would share it with you. The definition that Brene Brown gave of despair is it comes as a great shock around the age of five or six or seven to discover that Gary Cooper killing off the Indians when you're rooting for Gary Cooper, that the Indians were you. It comes as a great shock to discover the country which is your birthplace and to which you owe your life and your identity has not in its whole system of reality evolved any place for you. James Baldwin. 
the fear that tomorrow will look just like today. So someone who's experiencing despair doesn't have a lot of hope that tomorrow will change their circumstances or anything else. And when I thought about that as it relates to racism, it just made so much sense that it's really easy as a person of color, particularly a black person in America, to experience despair because we don't have a lot of hope that tomorrow is going to look different from today or the proverbial yesterday, which is hundreds of years. I am struggling with that now watching a lot of, I would say, younger people start this conversation and kind of pick up the torch, so to speak, when it comes to anti-racism work. But I still wonder, you know, I have that little voice in the back of my head that has a little bit of despair, you know, is tomorrow going to look different than today? I don't know. Those are things that we fight with. Those are real feelings that everyone who is a person of color in this country faces at one point in time. And if we don't take a long look at all the feelings that racism creates, we will do ourselves a huge disservice, number one, but number two, we'll discount the experience that we share. Because if you start talking to someone who is not of your culture, but is a person of color about shame or despair or fear or anger, or collective grief or exhaustion, you'll probably see that you have a lot in common. And frankly, you can have those conversations with people that are white and find that you have a lot in common. It'll probably not be about racism, but it will probably be about something personal that they've experienced in their life that causes them anger or fear or shame. So it's important to not only acknowledge those feelings in ourselves, but in other people so that we can have a real conversation about the toll that racism is having in our lives. I don't know what most white people in this country feel only conclude what they feel from the state of their institutions. I don't know if white Christians hate Negroes or not, but I know we have a Christian church which is white and one which is black. That says a great deal to me about a Christian nation. I don't know if the labor unions and their bosses really hate me. It doesn't matter. I know I'm not in their unions. I don't know if the real estate lobby is against black people but I know it's keeping me in the ghetto. I don't know if the Board of Education hates me, but I know the textbooks they give my children and the schools that we have to go to. This is the evidence. James Baldwin. As you can tell by the two quotes, I have recently gotten really intrigued by the work of James Baldwin and in particular his commentary on race in America. I highly recommend the documentary I'm Not Your Negro. I will put in the show notes where you can stream that documentary, but it is just an amazing look at a really tumultuous time in our history and juxtaposed with just phenomenal prose written by Mr. Baldwin himself and 
the quote that I just played was really profound to me. And I thought that it would be important to talk about not only what racism feels like, but what it looks like. Those of us who experience it, we know. And I think sometimes we know intrinsically and not even intellectually at times. I know that was the case for me. You can feel that something is wrong, but not know what it is that's wrong. And I think when it comes to racism, that happens a lot. And I think it's important to just really talk about what racism looks like in 2020, given that it does look a lot different than it did in James Baldwin's time. We have made a lot of strides in a sense that I can use the same restroom as a white person and I can sit wherever I want on the bus. But when it comes to systemic racism, we have not made the strides that we should have in this time. It's been over 60, 70 years since we started having civil rights discussions and things haven't really changed that much. So I wanted to talk about what racism looks like today for someone who may not experience it on a regular basis. I think the easiest thing to think about when you say racism is slavery and civil rights movement. But there is a lot of racism that is prevalent today. And some of that we've kind of touched on with the fear of police brutality or any other kinds of physical violence inflicted on us because we're black. But there's also other ways that racism rears its ugly head in our lives. And I have to say that recently I've heard a lot about people being tired of having this conversation because they think that it's a political conversation or a controversial conversation. And I've said this before, and I just wanted to make sure I said it on this show, that racism is not a political issue. It's a human issue. It's a soul issue. And it is a tiresome conversation. We've talked about exhaustion and racism, but we have to have this conversation because it shows up in more than just politics. It looks like a little kid not being able to play with other kids at the playground. Or it looks like someone like myself who has worked tirelessly to achieve a certain career not being able to get a position because of what I look like. Or it looks like someone who has saved enough money for a down payment and found the house of their dreams, but they're denied the contract because of what they look like. These are things that happen today, not 70 years ago, today. And we have to address those things. They're uncomfortable, but they have to be talked about. And one of the things about racism that is difficult, what Ibram Kendi says, is that it's rain, which means it falls on all of us, both white and black, 
but its most important weapon is making us think that we're dry. That is deep. We think that we're not affected by racism when we are. It causes everyone, all of us, to be both victimizers and victims at the same time. When someone comes with the umbrella that is anti-racism, a lot of people don't want it because they think they're dry. So this is lifelong work we're talking about. This is constant unlearning of everything we've been taught, both overtly and subvertly in our entire lives. Racism looks like everything we watch on TV, and it looks like everything we read. It looks like all the books in the high school reading list. I didn't read James Baldwin until I was a 30-year-old adult. This is someone who is a prolific American writer with one of the most quintessential American voices, and I never even knew who he was until I was in college. But I read so many books by white authors in my upbringing. That's racism. It might not be as mean-spirited and direct as what you think of when you think of racism, but that is racism. And that's why it's important to think outside the box of what we consider racism to be. It's not just mean-spirited, defiant acts. It's also the subversive acts that we don't even think of because we've just been so trained and these ideas have been so ingrained in our heads. Another thing that I think is important to discuss as it pertains to what racism looks like in 2020 are white woman tears. And I know that that's a controversial statement, but it's an important topic. Going back historically, white women have been used by the white supremacist movement as a tool of oppression against black men. I was, I think in college, when I found out that there was a movie called The Birth of a Nation. If you've never heard of it, I challenge you to Google it today. You will be blown away. It was made, I think, in the 1910s, I believe. Um, Yeah, maybe around like 1910, something like that. It was a silent film. It was really cutting edge for its time. And so much so that Woodrow Wilson actually showed it in the White House. Like it was a very popular movie. And the premise of the movie is glorifying the KKK for lynching a man who either rapes or attempts to rape a white woman. And it ingrained an idea in a generation of Americans that black men are dangerous rapists and white women are to be protected from them. Thus, joining the KKK or something similar is a noble act for a white man if you want to protect the uh, precious white women that you've been entrusted with. And you see that today with the Amy Coopers of the world who have been taught that all they have to do is turn on those tears and that fake fear in order to eventually brutalize a black man. You know, her goal at the time 
may not have been to brutalize him, but that was definitely something that could have happened if he would have had an altercation with the police. And I'm assuming that you know who Amy Cooper is, but if you don't, she's a woman who called the police on a black bird watcher in Central Park after he kindly requested that she put a leash on her rescue dog. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of people who have been trained to turn on white woman tears in order to get their way not only with black men but also with black women that is a I think really common exchange in the workplace where a black woman can speak truth or assert herself or even just do her job and if it in any way inconveniences a white woman the tears come on and then the black woman is admonished or um, just spoken to about what they did even though it might not have been something wrong that is something that I've experienced my entire life but I thought that I was the problem I thought I was too aggressive I thought I needed to change how I spoke to people and now realizing that this is a common issue for other black women and black men I really decided to own the fact that I'm allowed to speak my truth and be who I am even though it may offend people because it's coming out of a black body I highly recommend you listen to Jen Hatmaker and Lisa Sharon Harper's conversation I think it's titled white woman tears I'll also put that information in the episode notes it's an amazing conversation about this issue Jen being a white woman, Lisa Sharon Harper being a black woman, and just really having open dialogue about the impact of white woman tears in our society. Racism also looks like our institutions. I read Frederick Douglass's July 4th speech from 1852, this July 4th, and I was just really surprised at how you can replace the word slavery with any other institution in this country and it will remain relevant today. Other than the fact that black people in this country are no longer slaves, there was a lot of parallelism when it came to what he was talking about in 1852 and what we experience today the dehumanization that black people experience today particularly with language words like thugs and criminals and you know things like that that dehumanization is not gone it is very much a part of our society and so you take dehumanization and language And it's only one step away from dehumanization and behavior. How do you do that? Well, you institutionalize dehumanization through our medical system, through our criminal justice system, through our housing systems, through our education systems. It is just systemic in this nation. And I think 
for a long time, as I said earlier, we've consumed really biased data that told us that the reason why black people are disproportionately affected by poverty and illness and violence and incarceration and, you know, all these other issues is because they deserved it, essentially, that we black people, our behavior, our character, our genetics, there's just something about black people that caused us to deserve all those situations. And now, thank God for unbiased data and the internet and researchers and historians were saying that a lot of that data that we've been consuming was biased and prejudiced and it was made to tell a very specific story it was made to make us think a certain way and the people who were making those decisions were white supremacists it goes back to phrenology i don't know if you've seen Django. It's very good. If you haven't, it's a little violent, but it's a great movie. In that movie, they show kind of this study of phrenology as it pertains to white supremacy. And there's a slave owner who takes out the skull of his caretaker and um, basically starts explaining why the divots and pivots and different things in his skull indicated subserviency in black people and this is like a scientific study like people really believed this and there's more data there's a lot of police data crime data a lot of data that we've all consumed over generations that said that black people were the reason why and not policy and today it's really important that when we're looking at data especially right now, you know, with the internet, it's a blessing and a curse. There's so many websites, there's so many people posting information, and it's important that we look at where we're getting information, who's creating it, and if there's an agenda behind it. There's a lot of agendas behind all information, honestly. I guess it's hard to say that any information doesn't come with an agenda, but it's important to really look and see what that agenda is and if it's objective or not, because it's really easy to color statistics and make it seem however you want it to seem. And I have seen data that makes it seem like people of color are deserving of their experiences because of who they are, and it's just not the case. There's a book called Talking with Strangers by Malcolm Gladwell. And there's a chapter in that book about the Kansas City Experiment, which is a methodology of policing that was invented in Kansas City. And it talks about the impact that that particular experiment had on policing of black neighborhoods all over the country. And it very clearly shows the issues that are arising with over-policing in black neighborhoods stem from that argument that you need to have a really strong presence and patrol a neighborhood even when there's nothing happening. That has resulted in countless deaths and countless breaches of justice, but still, it's something that we utilize because 
data shows that it's quote unquote effective. That is what racism looks like in America today in 2020. It's not just institutional. It's also unintentional acts that individuals carry out on each other and they're still wrong. I have a lot of grace for people who have just been indoctrinated just like the rest of us with information that their parents gave them or whatever family member, but it doesn't make it any less wrong. It's important to still hold people accountable for the mistakes that they make, even if they're unintentional, even if they're quote unquote nice people. Austin Channing Brown has a quote that I love that says, niceness is not an antidote to racism. And I think that is just so true. Someone can be a nice person and still exhibit racist ideas. And just because they're nice does not mean that we should not hold them accountable for what they say. And just because they exhibit racist ideas doesn't make them not nice. It probably indicates that they're not the nicest person in the world, but they could still be nice. Again, these are things that are rained down on us over time and they just soak into our brains and our bodies and someone can be a great person but still have these really damaging viewpoints that's been a struggle for me personally especially being Kenyan American I think a friend of mine Jackie said this best that Kenyans are more comfortable in white spaces I don't know why that is but it's definitely true And I've just been surrounded by white people my whole life who I think genuinely loved me and my family, but also had really racist ideas and would say them to us often because they othered us. They would say, oh, well, you're not one of those black people or you guys are African. So you're some of the good ones. You know, we're like more palatable black people than black Americans. You know, our culture is fun They like the way we dance. They like the way we speak. We're very subservient and we smile a lot, you know. So we're just, I think, kind of seen as the more acceptable black people. And it's been a struggle in my life to reconcile those things that these people who genuinely, I think, have affection for me and respect me as a person also have a genuine disrespect of people who look just like me. That just because someone's last name is Jackson and my name is Gathumbi doesn't mean that I'm any different from them. And that has been probably a lifelong discussion that I've had with both other Kenyan Americans and black Americans and white Americans. This idea of the difference between black Americans and African Americans, meaning, you know, people who live in America and are directly descendant from Africa. And I mean, I don't know if there's any necessary resolution to it. I do know that I'm really inspired by what I hear Kenyan American parents doing with their children. Jackie, that same person who told me that, said that she has really been thrown into advocacy at her children's school 
and really helping to ensure that there's representation for her daughters to see and really engrossing herself in black culture. She said that as a family, they celebrated Juneteenth, which I just thought was amazing. I don't think my parents even knew what Juneteenth was. So I'm really hopeful at what the next generation will look like. And I think and I pray that there will be a a joining of the cultures that people who are born here can not only embrace and accept and enjoy black American culture, but they can also do the same with Kenyan culture and retain both. There's this idea when you're talking about power that there's the difference between power over and power with. And we're trained to think about power over, that there's a hierarchy to power, and if one person has more, the other person has less. But I'm starting to really look into the concept of power with, which is we are all powerful when we all empower each other, and that your power doesn't take from mine. In fact, the more powerful you are, the more powerful I am. And I feel that way about culture. I think the way my parents thought and maybe some immigrants think is that the more American their child is, the less whatever culture they come from they'll be. If your kids embrace American culture, they'll be less Kenyan. Or if they embrace American culture, they'll be less Honduran or wherever you come from. And I just don't think that's the case. Helping your child to embrace both their American culture and their Kenyan culture, I think will inspire them to see the good things in both and how they connect to each other. I think you can only see more growth when you celebrate both. So like I said, I'm excited to see what this new generation of Kenyan parents is doing when it comes to racism and having these race conversations with their kids because at the end of the day Kenyan kids are black kids if you see me walking down the street you will not think oh look at that Kenyan woman you will think look at that black woman and when I have children and they walk down the street people will think look at these black children so it's important for me and my husband especially to start really thinking about how we'll address these things and make sure that our kids learn to celebrate black culture the way we didn't really get the chance to do. Another way that racism shows up today and is a very controversial conversation is the idea of white privilege. And I think it's one of those buzzwords that have been thrown around a lot and have offended a lot of people without really them taking the time to understand what it's really about. So I just want to kind of give a really quick overview of the concept of white privilege for anyone listening who may not fully understand it. I think it's really important to say that the idea of white privilege does not negate the idea of privilege in other people. I am a black woman and I am privileged in that I am a healthy person, I was born in America, I make a decent living income, I mean, I could go on and on about the privileges that I have. The privilege that I do not have is the privilege of white skin. That is, in and of itself, the definition of white privilege. The idea that your skin tone 
affords you certain privileges in this nation. What it doesn't mean is that as a white person, you've had a very easy life. I am from Mobile, Alabama. I have seen struggling white people. White privilege does not mean that every white person is wealthy. It does not mean that every white person is educated. It simply means that your skin tone is not an extra factor that you have to think about when it comes to the difficulties in your life. Whereas as a black person, I think when you start listing out stymies to your growth, being black is pretty high up on that list. And it's not an internal thing. It's something that we inherit from society. I love, absolutely love being a black woman, but I do know that being black is not a privilege when it comes to society and in particular in this country. And I think when we're having this conversation about white privilege, there's a lot of connotation that people have honestly developed because it's not even what it means, but there's a negative connotation that has been connected to white privilege to intimate that if you have white privilege, you have always lived a really easy life and you had a silver spoon in your life and never struggled or honestly never even worked hard. And that is just simply not the case. That's not the meaning of the phrase. The phrase simply is to denote that if you are white, you enjoy a certain privilege of having that white skin. And what does that look like? That means when you're pulled over, more than likely if you're a white person, you're not afraid of being murdered, as a lot of black people are afraid of. Or as a white person, when you are going into a bank or when you are going into a retail establishment, you are afforded the benefit of the doubt because of your white skin versus if you're a person of color, especially a black person walking into a retail establishment, you're probably going to be followed or side-eyed simply because of the color of your skin. That is what white privilege is about. And it's important that white people acknowledge what it is, and it's also important for everyone who has privilege to acknowledge their privilege because I think it helps people who struggle with the idea to understand that we all have levels of privilege. I always make it a point when I start having conversations with white people about their privilege to remind them that I also have privilege and to remind them that just because I have privilege doesn't mean that I don't experience racism. And just because they have white privilege doesn't mean that they are prevented from having troubles in their life. That's not what it means. It just means that once again, the color of their skin affords them certain privileges that my skin tone does not. All right, so the last way that racism shows up in our society today that I want to talk about is in Christianity. And again, I am a Christian, but I'm not using this podcast as a preaching platform, but I would be remiss if I did not mention the impact that white supremacy has had on Christianity. And it is a controversial conversation. I have been living that reality for the past four weeks. I think that people who deny that there's white supremacy in Christianity 
have a belief that if you critique something by default you are negating it and that is not the case I happen to believe the opposite way if I love something and I believe in something I want to critique it because I want it to be the best possible way it can be and I think that ignoring huge issues within something like Christianity can only be destructive and when I say destructive I mean not just to the institution itself but also to the people that were practicing it for example in my personal experience white supremacy was a undergirding but very consistent part of the Christianity that I was taught And I don't think that the people who taught me Christianity were teaching me white supremacy on purpose because most of them were black, but they were just implicit things that I think we were taught because they were given that information also. And when you look at where Christianity and Kenya came from, it was from white missionaries. And so a lot of the Christianity they taught was given in a lens that helped their self-interest. And something that Ibram Kendi says is that at the forefront of racism is self-interest. And I think in a lot of cases, the Christianity that was dispensed in a lot of colonialized countries was for the self-interest of the missionaries who were not only telling people about the gospel but also using that gospel to create a more subservient people that they could take from and rape and pillage and that's a hard history that's a hard thing to think about on all sides I don't think I ever even considered those implications of missionary Christianity until I did a paper on post-colonial Africa and what it looked like because of things that were done during the time of colonial reign and now that I'm older that was back when I was in college and now that I'm older I've been exposed to a book called The Very Good Gospel by Lisa Sharon Harper that has really exposed to me how white supremacy became a part of the gospel from early on and why it was necessary for white supremacists to do that. It was self-interest. In many cases throughout history, you'll see that Christianity has been perverted to advance one group's self-interest over another's. And I don't think there's a more profound example of that than with racism. We see Christians in the days of slavery justifying slavery using the Bible. We see Christians in the days of Jim Crow justifying segregation using the Bible. And today, I think it's less of a justification of overt acts of racism and more of a justification of apathy. I see more of a turning a blind eye to the issues of racism in this country by the church as a whole because I think it makes people uncomfortable. And I think now in 
our society, Christianity is looked at as kind of a safety blanket. It's supposed to make people feel good. And having conversations about racism does not make people feel good. So someone would rather go to church and get a soy latte with the foam in a cross shape and hear a really feel-good sermon while their children are playing with iPads and singing really cool songs about Jesus and then they all go home and go on with their week as opposed to going into a sermon that is about white supremacy. That makes for a hard Sunday. It's important, but it's not what I think most people want to hear on Sunday morning. So we just don't talk about it. Austin Channing Brown talks about the difference between white Jesus and, you know, black Jesus. And I thought it was really interesting because we've heard, you know, Martin Luther King talk about Sunday being the most segregated day of the week and James Baldwin talks about the white church and the black church but I had never really thought about white Jesus versus black Jesus outside of just imagery what they look like but what Austin Channing Brown said is that white Jesus is focused on prosperity of self versus black Jesus is a social justice collectivist figure and that was really powerful to me and it made a lot of sense to me also when I hear the sermons coming out of my church which is a black church they are a lot different than when I stream services from white churches just the commentary the conversations the goals the admonishment they just it's a lot different and I think that with this nation being a Christian nation and statistically most white Americans considering themselves Christians, it's gonna be really, really imperative for the church itself to start having hard conversations about racism. On Pentecost Sunday this year, I made a decision to watch the church services of four really um, popular white churches in this city. Churches that I know have congregants that are influencers, that are politicians, that are wealthy people, the kind of people who can move the needle when we talk about institutional racism. I wanted to see what they were hearing on Sunday. I knew what I was going to hear because that wasn't my first Sunday going to church after the murder of a black person that was televised to the whole world. I had been in church when that happened with Alton Sterling and Eric Gardner and so many people that I could name. I really wanted to find out what the white church was talking about. And so I chose these four churches and I streamed their sermons. And out of the four that I watched, only one made his entire sermon about racial reconciliation in the church the other one mentioned a little bit about race issues said that they were going to pray for them the next day on a video call but really didn't talk about it and then on the other two 
streaming videos, there was no mention of the racial issues going on in the world at that time. So on Pentecost Sunday, I don't know if you remember, our nation was literally on fire, on fire from protests because of the racial injustice that we've been experiencing as people of color. And yet, essentially three out of four churches did not even mention what was happening. That is what racism looks like in Christianity. And when I say Christianity, I don't mean what Christianity is supposed to look like. I mean what it looks like practically today. I have learned so much from Very Good Gospel, which is a novel or a book by Lisa Sharon Harper. I have learned what I think what Christianity is really supposed to be and what it really is supposed to look like as opposed to the filtered version that I've received from man and in particular white men. And that has changed my faith walk. I cannot express to you how much learning to decipher the portions of what I've learned that were white supremacist based versus those that are truly from God. It's made a huge difference in my life, just like learning about shame and Christianity have made a huge difference in my life. And I can only speak for Christianity. This might be the case in different religions, but particularly because black people and Christianity have such a deep relationship, I think it's such an important conversation for us to have because it affects us so much. If the religion that you believe in or the interpretation of the religion you believe in is telling you that you are intrinsically not good because of the way you look and that you need to glorify another group of people because of the way they look, we need to start having hard conversations about that religion or at least the interpretation. So again, I really believe that we can't make real change as it pertains to racism in this country until the church gets on board, and in particular, the white church. I think it's something like 60% of white Americans consider themselves Christian, and 40% of them go to church often. Well, that is a huge amount of people that are not hearing a message about anti-racism, and that's something that needs to be addressed. It goes hand in hand with the final topic that we'll discuss, which is what do we do now? I think the church has a lot of responsibility when it comes to what we can do now, but all of us as individuals play an integral role in this anti-racism fight. So the last segment of this episode will be some tips that I have on what you can do to either preserve yourself or have open-hearted conversations, or be an ally in the way that is best for you. I can't be a pessimist because I'm alive. To be a pessimist means you have agreed that human life is an academic matter, so I'm forced to be an optimist. I am forced to believe that we can survive whatever we must survive. James Baldwin So now that we've talked about the impact of racism, I think it's only right that we talk about what we can do 
And in this new era or climate of racial conversation, I am really optimistic about change, but I'm really hoping that this newfound awareness we've had isn't temporary. As I said at the beginning of the show, it's been great to see all the different conversations, but I get nervous that some of it is placating or appeasement and not an effort to make real lasting change because that takes a lot of work and it's exhausting as we've talked about. So I'm really hoping that we all, even if we don't all become activists, can learn a little bit from this moment in history and make a decision or a commitment to keeping up this conversation with whoever we can in whatever space we have influence, we can make a difference with this conversation. So let's see, what kind of steps do we have? I think the first step is learning. And in conjunction to that, I'm learning. I have learned so, so much about the black experience in the past, I don't know, maybe five weeks or so. And before that, and that six months prior, I had probably learned more than in my entire life. This journey is never ending. You will never read all the books. You will never watch all the documentaries. Even when Hulu and Netflix and Amazon Prime stop curating lists of, you know, black stories for you to watch, they will be there. And it's important. I have watched a ton of documentaries, some of which I'll put in the episode notes, that have really shaped how I think about racism in America. Some are about the past and some are about today. But either way, they're relevant because, again, we are our past. There's no such thing as past. I watched one documentary that talked about the fact that people in, I believe, Georgia or Alabama still have fingers from a man who was lynched in the 50s in a jar in their home. So there's no history about this. This is affecting us today. So again, learning and unlearning is something that you will have for the rest of your life. And I will too. I don't think I will ever stop unlearning some of the damaging ideas that have been implanted in my mind as it relates to racism. I hope I do, but I think that it will be a daily practice just like shame resilience because honestly it is shame resilience I think another important step is to humble yourself I think that in both cases both me as a black woman and someone who is a white person having this conversation there needs to be humility on both sides which is very tough especially when you are the oppressed because you feel that you deserve to have the feelings that you do, which you do, but I think it creates in some cases a lack of humility that makes the conversation more difficult. So if you decide to engage in a open discussion about racism, whichever way that you 
consider yourself either kind of on the giving or receiving end of that conversation, I think it's really important that we all humble ourselves. Also, I think before you even embark on a conversation like that, research and read about open-hearted listening. It is critical. There's a woman named Harriet Lerner, and she has a book called Why Don't You Apologize? And it's a really great masterclass, I feel like, on open-hearted listening and the reasons why we don't do that. Shame is a big part of that. But I think that it would do more damage than good to even begin conversations around race that are sensitive if you haven't done some work on open-hearted listening because that's the problem when I look at social media or even in person the conversations that people have around race there's just closed minds and closed hearts no one is really listening they're just waiting for their chance to speak their piece and that's why we're not really going anywhere with this conversation so open-hearted listening is really critical Uh, Getting comfortable with discomfort, again, on both ends. It's really uncomfortable for me to listen to somebody talk about the fact that they're tired of hearing about racism and that they just want to get back to their normal lives. That is extremely difficult for me. I have to sit in that discomfort and allow them to say how they feel and then process it and respond and not react but respond with how I feel and that's hard but it's because we don't like being discomfortable so just really thinking about what that looks like to sit in our discomfort and allow people to express themselves Uh, and part of that is developing empathy for people if I listen to that person who said I'm tired of talking about racism I just want to get back to my normal life with no empathy that comment will infuriate me but if I have a little empathy and think what they're really saying is that they are in an uncomfortable situation while they have this conversation and as anyone they would like their discomfort to be over sooner rather than later it gives me a better lens to see what they're saying because I understand that I've been uncomfortable and I wanted it to end quickly so I understand that they are uncomfortable and they want it to end quickly now they also need to have some empathy when I respond with well you know this is something that I've been living with my whole life but I can't determine whether or not they'll have empathy for me all I can do is have empathy for them because again This is self-preservation. This isn't, okay, people of color, you guys just need to be, you know, what does Michelle Obama say? When they go low, we go high. This is not about having the better face or quote-unquote being the better person. It's self-preservation. The anger that I feel and the malice that I feel will eat me inside. It will eat anyone inside. So... The more I can have empathy, it saves me in these situations, not even the other person. And I think the last important tool in this conversation with anti-racism 
is admission and confession. So again, Ibram Kendi has a lot of great insight into this anti-racism conversation. He says that the heartbeat of anti-racism is confession and that the heartbeat of racism conversely is denial. So, and again, this is something that is on both sides. Both people of color and white people have to get really comfortable with admitting and confessing some things. I have to get really honest with myself about times that I've exhibited bias with others, you know, class bias, gender bias, all kinds of things. And I also have to get really honest with myself and confess times where I have allowed the shame that has been inflicted on me to affect who I am as a person and how I see myself. And, you know, people who have been biased, we, we have to confess it. It's painful. It's tough. But again, remember that it's not your identity. Admitting or confessing a racist thought does not make you a racist person. It means that you are a person who had a racist thought. That's not something to be ashamed of. It's something to be guilty about. Again, guilty being I did something wrong versus shame. I am something wrong. If we can get comfortable admitting our faults and not having them be indictments on our characters, this conversation about racism will be a lot smoother. Finally, I think it's really, really important that we develop some emotional intelligence. This isn't really necessarily a tool, but I think it's critical in overcoming racism, especially because emotional intelligence helps us determine how we interpret things and how we have conversations. For example, learning about emotional intelligence and anger versus disappointment taught me that anger is a response to injustice versus disappointment being a response to an unmet expectation. And people act differently when they're disappointed versus when they're angry. And people act differently when they're depressed or have despair versus when they're disappointed. So it's important to kind of look at those things and see how people are responding to situations I remember there was a lot of talk about protesters and why they were burning things down and destroying property and why they were being angry. And, you know, it's clear they're being angry because they're responding to injustice. And once we can really look at emotional intelligence in that way and see why people respond and react the way they do, I think it will also help the racism conversation. Accountability is critical, but it's going to be important that we hold people accountable without shaming them. There is a huge difference between holding someone accountable and shaming them. People will feel shame even though you don't shame them because racism is a shame-filled conversation. But this kind of what we call a cancel culture of not giving someone the opportunity to genuinely acknowledge their wrongs and make a different choice is a little problematic to me. I 
believe that we need to hold people accountable for their actions. So if that means, you know, something happening with their career or something like that, I don't see that necessarily as a bad thing. Where I find it problematic is that we shame the person. And shame causes people to dig more deeper in the destructive behavior that they're already engaging in. So if I tell someone, you know, a celebrity, you should not have said this thing that you said, that's a lot different than you're a terrible human being who should have never been famous, and this is why you've always been trash, and this is why you're canceled for life. The latter is not going to change behavior on their part. In fact, I saw a story where she's a like a Canadian socialite, and she got shamed for saying something inappropriate to a black blogger. And instead of apologizing, she apologized on social media, but then sent the woman a direct message threatening her and giving her even more racist language than she was shamed for in the beginning. And it was just such a perfect example on how shame begets more shame as opposed to, you know, someone discussing what was done in a constructive way and not shaming this person. Now, I will also say that the internet is full of shame. So just because someone feels shame by, you know, a random commenter or something doesn't mean that they were not held accountable in the right way. The black blogger that I saw did everything she could in her video to be really respectful and I think she had a lot of grace but you know as soon as she posted it people came out of the woodwork shaming this other woman and you know she was in the comments trying to defend herself and simultaneously in this woman's direct messages threatening her and uh, giving her a lot of racist diatribe so you know This is a really interesting time to be alive. Conversations that are had on the internet are not private, and those things last forever. We're just seeing so much of people coming out of the woodworks with receipts of racism, of celebrities and politicians and all kinds of people, and rightfully so, they're being held accountable for their actions. I wonder, though, if people are understanding the difference between shaming that person and holding them accountable for their actions because shame is not a social justice tool. Audre Lorde said that you cannot use the master's tools to dismantle their system and shame is absolutely one of the master's most important tools. So I don't believe that we'll get anywhere in our anti-racism work by shaming other people. It's going to require accountability through empathy, which is tough. But again, I feel like it's worth it. So I will put some really great resources that have spoken to me recently in the episode notes. And I hope that you look into them, share them with other people, start conversations with your friends. I'm really hoping that this is the beginning of more conversations because, like I said, I feel like I'm seeing 
this movement die down a little bit on a macro level. And I really want us to seize this moment and commit to lifelong change as it pertains to racism. So thank you so much for listening to everything that I had to say. And next episode, we're going to talk about something that kind of pertains to racism. It's a topic that has really impacted me in the past eight years, and it is narcissism. I think there's a lot of misconceptions around narcissism, just like racism. So I hope I can clear some of those up and have a helpful discussion on what narcissism is and how it affects our lives and how we can heal from it. Not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it has been faced. History is not the past, it is the present. We carry our history with us. We are our history. If we pretend otherwise, we literally are criminals. James Baldwin. Thank you so much for joining me once again on Root the Truth podcast. If you're liking this content, please don't forget to like it, subscribe to it, share it, tweet about it, leave a review. Anything you can do to spread the message will be so helpful. Thank you so much for your support. I really appreciate it. Take care.